Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Have you heard the message? An original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. All of season one is available now, so listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for the message on iTunes. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, an award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the Hollywood editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here as always with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hi, guys. Hi, everybody. So this week, we've finally gotten our eyes on what was one of the biggest mysteries of award season, The Revenant. We'll talk about whether it will finally win Leonardo DiCaprio, that elusive Oscar, and its other award season hopes. From there, we'll look back at some of our favorite Oscar wins of recent years and then look a bit forward to the Golden Globe nominations, which will be announced next week. They're always the most fun award show of the year, but do the Golden Globes actually matter? Finally, we'll go big before we go home and predict who will win Best Supporting Actress. I'm afraid to die anymore. I've done it already. Of all the interesting questions you can ask in any given award season, for some reason we've been hung up on this one for years. When is Leonardo DiCaprio finally going to win that Oscar? And with The Revenant, it feels like we might have our answer. It's directed by Alejandro Gonzalez and Yuritu, who won Best Picture less than a year ago with Birdman. It's this big-scale survival story, and DiCaprio is in basically every frame. It basically looks like DiCaprio's Oscar movie and has since we first knew it existed. And now all three of us have managed to see the movie. So what do we think? Is it actually the big deal Oscar hope we've been waiting for this whole time? You know, well, one thing that's maybe worth pointing out is not only are we obsessed with it, but a lot of people are obsessed. And I think one of the reasons we keep thinking about it and talking about it is we know from looking at our, you know, web metrics, how many people out there are really, really pulling for Leonardo DiCaprio to win. And we're talking about fans who are out there, you know, on Twitter, on their phones or whatever it is, just waiting for this thing to happen to the guy that they've been in love with since Titanic or have been rooting for since Titanic. Or Romeo and Juliet. Or Romeo and Juliet, right, exactly. And so I, I think, meanwhile, there's been maybe a little bit of skepticism within the industry about about Leo. And there's actually some kind of weird sort of annoying moralistic thing about it like should a guy who lives his life as cavalierly and uber bachelory as leo 
really be rewarded with this kind of thing. And so I think it's a super interesting dynamic. And I personally think that he is going to just smash the backboard with this performance and take home the Oscar this year. To me, it's just like it, I, I've never seen a slam dunk like it. But I'm curious to hear what you guys think. I, I walked. I, I was like 20 minutes into the movie. I was just like, oh, my God, this is happening. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that the only thing that could get in his way is if, because the performance, it's really grueling. It's about, you know, this early kind of fur trader, explorer, settler kind of guy who gets mauled by a bear and then treks across 200 something miles to sort of get revenge. So it's a really physical... Not revenge on the bear, to be No, no, no. (laughs) The guy who abandoned him for dead. Right, yeah, yeah. Played by Tom Hardy. Not on the bear. So it's a really physical performance and it's really involved and it's really technical and it's, so there, there might be a slight element of, oh, he's really trying for this. Like it's sort of like, it may be telegraphed it's Oscariness a little bit, but no, Mike, I agree with you. I, I maybe it took me a little longer than twenty minutes, but like <laughs> after forty, I was like, yeah, this is kind of working, and it's it, like you said, Katie. He is just the center of almost every shot. Like he is just really the focus, and um, and he carries what is a pretty grueling two-hour, forty-six-minute long movie. Like, and but he holds it, and yep. I think that 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 kind of degree of difficulty will will do well for him. And, and, and clearly there's a cynical side of this, right? I mean, our, our uh, my friend and our uh, contributor, James Murphy, wrote a story for us about a year and a half ago that got a lot of attention. We posted it on Oscar night when Leo, just after Leo lost for Wolf of Wall Street. And basically he said that Leo is too cool to win Best Actor. And he had gone and done a lot of actual analysis of who wins Best Actor and who doesn't, and basically he came up with this thing, the Tom Hanks-Brad Pitt continuum. If you're if you're Tom Hanks-ish and you show emotion and your eyes crinkle up and you cry, you win Best Actor. And if you're Brad Pitt-ish and you're cool and you always keep an air of reserve, you don't win. And whatever the reason is, maybe it's because Oscar voters are predominantly old guys who don't want to be reminded how short and not that attractive they are or, or what it is or they're schmaltzy or who knows what the reason is. This seems to be a pattern. But in this film, just setting aside what I actually think is a towering physical performance, like Leo does also hit all the marks of a Tom Hanks performance and and James and I were even joking around and he said well does he cry at least twice Are there at least four focus you know close-ups on his face and does he cry in at least one of them and I said not only does he cry but his face is sideways and the tear rolls over the bridge of his nose and and James was like that's it he's winning best best actor well, but DiCaprio is he is very cool he's got this playboy lifestyle like you were talking about but he has always shown the work I mean there are super cuts of him crying on screen from his entire career going back to Romeo and Juliet or what's eating Gilbert Gray and Revolutionary Road, where he's tortured through the whole thing. Like, he's never been someone who really wanted to coast on screen. But for some reason, that Playboy image has followed him in that way I think you're talking about, where he does seem like a cool guy. But in The Revenant, I really feel like it's impossible to think about that part of his reputation. He is just this guy in the beard and scraggly and crawling through the snow naked and, like, putting himself through the ringer in this way that I think proves what has always been true about him is that he's really willing to put in the work. And this is one that you just can't ignore it because the entire movie is about him putting in the work. I think you're right. I think there's a duality in Leo DiCaprio. I sound like this. I feel like an idiot saying <laughs> this. Psychoanalyzing uh, him. But like, let's face it, there's a duality in him and he basically erases the cool guy in this movie. It doesn't yeah. even exist. It's there kind of at the beginning and then it's absolutely obliterated by, you know, the end of the first act. And I think one thing that's also plagued his career for I'm not plagued I mean he's been very successful but his, his his awards career anyway um has been you know we 
you know, he his first Oscar nomination was for Gilbert Grape in 93, I think it was. He was a kid. He lost to Tommy Lee Jones, which was some category fraud um, <laughs> in The Fugitive. Um, speak, going back to an old episode. But, you know, but he's always had this very innately boyish quality mm-hmm. about him. You see it in Catch Me If You Can. You see it in Titanic. He's, you know, he's just, we kind of think of him as a perpetual 19-year-old. And this, I think, The Revenant is the first movie where I really bought him as a grown-up. I didn't buy it in Revolutionary Road. I didn't buy it in Blood Diamond. I didn't, you know. But this, like, he's, he. I mean, he doesn't look like your kind of classically handsome Leo. He's scraggly and a mess. Yeah, that's he, a good point. You know, I mean, he's yeah. got the big bushy beard. Yeah. He's got the bad teeth. He looks really thing. gross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he looks really gross. I'll just say it. Everyone in the movie looks terrible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, you know, he's also, not to spoil anything, but he's got this teenage son who he's sort of concerned about. And I really bought him as the father of someone that age. Mm. Like, I I think that he finally maybe sort of crossed some crucial line where I I think he's a grown-up now. It's kind of, We had to kind of do the same thing with Matt Damon, I think, and, and little, to a lesser extent. But I think that Leo has finally gotten to that place where we can actually view him as, we can accept the fact that he's in his 40s and that time has passed and we're, all, we're older than we were in 1995. <laughs> and if anyone's doing the cool guy thing in this, I think it's Tom Hardy, who is the villain, who is like kind of this very blatant villain. He's got He's been scalped before, so he's got this like bald patch on his scraggly. It's, he, <laughs> yeah, he again, looks really he gross. looks horrible. Yeah. But he's got this kind of swagger to him. Like he's a criminal who joined this fur trading expedition to kind of get away from some bad debts and you can tell from the very beginning he's no good and he's I mean Tom Hardy is so good at stealing scenes out from people he did this in Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio five years ago and he's got that swagger to him that I think lets you see Leonardo DiCaprio as a leading man they're really great foils for each other I really I would let them make 10 more movies together exactly like this yeah, I think Tom Hardy, I, I really do believe, is a good possibility for a Best Supporting Actor nomination, although that category is incredibly crowded this year. I think he could year. win, honestly. I think he could also win. I mean, uh, I, I don't know for sure, but he is awesome in this movie. Mm-hmm. And it is a fascinating thing about this film, and some people find it you know, tough to watch. And I also am glad I didn't see the trailer. I, I got to say, I feel like trailers these days, it's just ridiculous. It's just like they show the whole movie in May a minute May I show you a movie a called half? Star Wars that has shown us the same two minutes of footage for right. a year? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's just like, I'm really glad I went into this without reading too much and without watching any trailer so that I could actually be surprised by some of the things that are really shocking. But at the end of the day, you know from about... 15, 20 minutes into this movie, exactly where it's going, and it just inexorably goes down that road and in a really gripping way, I thought. Mm-hmm. And that's partly testament to these performances. You just, you're kind of like fixated, like just watching them. It's just a treat to watch such great acting and really great filmmaking, I think. And I think there's a certain mythos surrounding the movie almost like Titanic in a way, where, you know, the movie was originally budgeted $60 million, it ballooned to $125 million. There are a lot of reports from the Revenant set that it was really, you know, a really grueling shoot, that it people there were problems with snow, they had to fly down to Tierra del Fuego in South America to finally get some snow for the final scene, you know, all these crazy things. And I think that adds to the strength of the performances, you know, because you imagine these what we imagine to be pampered actors sort of thrusting themselves into these crazy kind of wildernesses and 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 being there for months at a time and everything's going wrong but they somehow eked it out in the end i think people like that kind of narrative right yeah. and and absolutely and i think they've also done a good job of of kind of building it up, right? Tom Hardy has, I think, half-joked about really wrestling with Leo on the set. No, with the director. Some, well, with the director, yeah. right. That's right. Well, and I also wonder how 
how method are these guys? Tom Hardy's pretty method, right? I mean, is he going to like behave like that the entire show? Yeah, he might. I think DiCaprio is for less of that from what I can tell. Yeah. But like, I mean, you see it on the screen. Like there's a shot where DiCaprio crawls out of a river wearing a bear skin, soaking wet and like takes it off and then like lays down and pants yeah. in the snow. And, With like, snow everywhere. And you can't fake that. You can't that. really like, fake that. that. You know he climbed out of a freezing cold river. And it like yeah. you're talking about the work that goes into it. Like when you see that on screen, like you admire the, I mean, I'm standing there admiring Alejandro Gonzalez and Uritu who just won a Best Director statue for Birdman, which makes this really interesting. Like, I think it's, it's incredibly rare to win Best Director twice in a row, but yeah. I do feel like this is such a bigger accomplishment than Birdman. And then Emmanuel Lebeski, who is the cinematographer, who has now won twice in a row for Gravity and Birdman and very easily could win a third time. This movie yes. is astonishing to look and at. And there's yeah. a look to the movie that I don't think I've seen before. There's It's, yes. it's not quite a fisheye lens. It's not, but there's a sort of strange curvature to the, to the framing yeah. or something. It's a really beautiful eerie kind of alien almost looking movie that I think I had a little bit of maybe more trouble with it Mike than you did I, I found it a little, maybe a little too growing a little too long but but the visuals alone sort of sustained it sustained it for me well yeah. and what I liked about the visuals is that they were connected to the theme right because I think this is a film that's saying I'm going to show you a western but it's going to be a very different perspective from the normal Western perspective, partly because the director is Mexican. And so we're going to see, you know, it's still mostly about white guys surviving all the odds. But, you know, the Native American perspective is presented much more, at least comprehensively, right? We know who they are. We know what they want. They're still actually terrifying because if you were one of these white guys getting shot at by incredibly fierce warriors, like you would be scared of them. But we know, but we see a much more, 360 view of what's happening here and I think that's reflected in the cinematography which to me is like great filmmaking you know versus some of the hyped films this year not to mention names yet where I feel like the style of the filmmaking and the themes and the story are all all over the place and it's you're not clear whether people knew what they were doing going in I, it's, I have a little bit of a problem with The Revenant. I think you're you're right talking about it being a Western and a really untraditional one and how most Westerns are about the formation of society and this kind of seems about the impossibility of society in the mm-hmm. West. Like, it can never work. But the book was called A Story of Revenge and I think this movie, when it becomes about revenge, especially toward the end, I do think it falls apart a little bit there. That, them- that thematic coherence isn't there for me. But I do think the two hours that come before have so much going on in them that that richness is also a part of it too. It... it it really captivated me. I think I know what you mean, Richard, about it being too long and too grueling, but it, I was along for the grueling I know, I know it's different. We can't give away the ending, I, and I know that you read the book and it's different, but but I'm curious to You're know... You're talking about the musical number at the end? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm curious to know what it is What is it about the revenge thing that, that didn't work for you? I mean, I think it basically it's about someone who's going out to get revenge, and then you see what happens, whether or not he gets it. And I don't think it has much to say about whether or not revenge is a good thing or a useful thing or okay. something that's enriching. And I, I, I think that it's, it's so... He is so driven by it. DiCaprio's character is so driven by it the entire time. And then I think when it gets to the end point, it doesn't have much to say about the nature of revenge. Yeah, I think it had more has uh, has has more to say about the Western genre, uh, in that it's kind of this. That I had this sort of this phrase in my head for when I write a review that it's sort of a primordial Western. I mean, it takes place. Mm-hmm. 50, 60 years before most Westerns do. It's the early 1800s. I think it's like 1830-ish. Pre-Civil War. Yeah, uh, definitely pre-Civil War. So it's kind of about the tough kind of scrambling, scraping that 
people had to do in order for Deadwood to happen. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And right. Deadwood was a pretty brutal yeah. place, but this yeah. is even there's nothing there. I mean, it's all brutality. It's all nature and, you know, m- men killing each other. So I think in that way, the themes are resonant. But I agree with you, Katie, that once the movie gets kind of overly concerned with plot, we sort of lose some of that grander sort of scope. But but yeah, I mean, for the for the bulk of the movie, I think it, it, it certainly it it's a pretty powerful kind of experience. Well, the 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 name the revenant means I had to look it up, but it means like an avenging ghost, basically, right? And so, in a way, I don't know that I was expecting any great meaning. It was just like we've created. It's kind of like the outlaw Josie Wales, right? Did you ever see that movie mm-hmm. where in the beginning you see Clint Eastwood's entire family slaughtered? And you just know that he's going to go hunt them all down and kill them. And it's going to feel good even though it's, like, wrong. And to me, that's, like, a perfectly legitimate Western (laughs) (laughs) plot. So go get revenge on your enemies because Leonardo DiCaprio told you that it was the... It's fantasy, right? You can't do it in your life. So just let the guy on screen do it. Yeah, and I think this, to me, harkens back to, like, the John Huston model of filmmaking where it's, like, we make movies because we're men and we're going to take these cameras out to these crazy places and we want to pretend that we're Lewis and Clark. And that kind of is the story behind the making of The Revenant. It's on screen with The Revenant. And I admire it. Like, not all movies need to be this macho and crazy anymore, which... Thank God. But when you do get something like this, it's like, yeah, that's part of why movies exist is because people are willing to haul these cameras up mountains. So should we talk uh, not to go on and on, but should we talk a little bit about the controversy around this where Jeff Wells tweeted, you know, forget women seeing this movie, which I thought was kind of funny since I sat with my girlfriend who absolutely adored it. She's a Republican (laughs) in fairness. But still, I mean, you know, what do you think, Katie, as a woman watching this movie, hearing this kind of like gendered like this is not a movie for women. I mean, it's definitely a movie about men by men. I think, Richard, you tweeted something last night about kind of for us, by us movies that I think The Revenant is kind of one of those. But I think if you like movies about men made by men in general, if you find that interesting, I find those themes of masculinity and the frontier and about trying to you know carve out existence in this wild place interesting. And I think this is an interesting spin on that. It's also super violent. So if you don't like, if you don't want to see Leonardo DiCaprio attacked by a bear... Uh, you notice that this one out because like that's part of the that's how it's advertised. But you know, when women like all moviegoers can have a lot of different tastes, and when people generalize like that, it makes them look like idiots, which is why they get in Twitter controversies. Yeah, I'm looking for Josie Wales. That'd be me. You're wanted, Wales. I reckon I'm right popular. You a bounty hunter? Yeah, he's got to do something for a living these days. Diane ain't much of a living boy. So very quickly, before we move on to our next segment, we wanted to look back into Oscar history, very briefly back in Oscar history, and I wanted to ask you guys, uh, what is your favorite Oscar win from any of the categories from the last five years? I sometimes get into these sort of like reveries, these fits of nostalgia, (laughs) and I'll go onto the Oscars channel on YouTube and watch acceptance speeches. I mean, I, some of them I could almost recite <laughs> from memory. But uh, last night I was watching um, Julianne Morris for just from last year for Still Alice. And it's one of the rare acceptance speeches where, you know, I think actresses unfortunately get this especially hard, you know, where they, people seem like too excited to get the award or whatever. But she's just seems so excited and so happy. And it was such a good performance. And she's had such a wonderful career and continues to have such a wonderful career that I, I loved her win last year. And I think that it was I think no one felt bad about it. You know, mm-hmm. it was just just like a very well-deserved, and it was a nice moment on stage for her. (laughs) 
much. I read an article that said that winning an Oscar could lead to living five years longer. If that's true, I'd really like to thank the Academy because my husband is younger than me. <laughs> yeah, my pick was another one from last year and another person who had had a long career who seemed over, kind of overdue in that way was Alexandre Desplat, who won for the Grand Budapest Hotel score, which is, is another one of his miraculous, great scores. And I just like seeing people who have done great work for a long time, whose time never seemed right. When Roger Deakins finally wins, hallelujah, it's going to feel the same way. And yeah, I think uh, original scores are always one of my favorite Oscar categories because you get kind of attached to these composers, you learn their t style. Michael Giacchino was another one who was just more than five years ago. Um, but yeah, Desplat, he was way overdue. It was very exciting. Okay, mine is totally opposite from that and arguably <laughs> for a terrible, corny, and annoying reason. But when Jennifer Lawrence won Best Actress for Silver Linings Playbook in 2013, she had not had a, many, many years of suffering or any of that stuff, but it was one of those like A Star is Born moments that mm -hmm. was just so incredibly special. And I happen to have been... At the Governor's Ball, which is the immediate official after party right after the Oscars that night. And I watched her walk into that room and do a huge spin with her dress. And I happened to be 10 feet away from her and watch everybody in that room just gazing with gigantic smiles on their faces like this is what this whole thing is for. And so that is a memory I'll always have. And that was a really cool win. Before we move on to the Golden Globes, a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, um, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But you know, I'm not gonna mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association, that famously inscrutable and fame-loving organization, is announcing their nominations for this year's Golden Globe Awards uh, next week. And we wanted to go over what we're expecting from this year's nominations, both in terms of the contenders who have been in the running for a while, but a Golden Globe nomination will really launch them to a new platform, and then some surprises they can throw our way, because the Golden Globes, with its comedy and musical categories and very strange rules that are different from the Oscars, can throw a lot of surprises into the mix. So, Mike, I was going to start with you in particular do these golden globes matter in terms of the race that we have are they really going to clarify things for us i mean i hope they do i have to say <laughs> this is like a really crazy complicated year and every time another awards group hands out some awards it's like wait i gotta go see that movie now too right i, I just feel like there are at least 20 or 25 movies in the mix and the movies that are in the mix keep changing. And so, you know, I was doing my Golden Globes picks like a huge nerd on goldderby.com and and was surprised at how hard it is to actually narrow down five dramas and five musical comedies. It's just a big kind of 
complicated, unclear field. And, you know, you can't overinterpret this group's selections because they're a very eccentric group of people. But I think and there's gotten, like 80 of them. And there's 80 of them. And God only knows, you know, what campaigning looks like with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. But it definitely involves them being bussed around and like glad handed by every single person who can afford to do that. A lot of free lunches. And a dinners. lot of free food. On the other hand, they seem to have gotten a little bit better about just handing completely random nominations and awards to big movie stars just to get them go to the show because I think they did see that they were starting to lose credibility. Their track record is decent and I think it will be really interesting to see. I think, you know, especially that comedy category, best comedy musical, some really interesting things could come out of that. It's a weird category. I mean, it's yeah. always weird, but this year there's not really a big splashy musical to throw in there. No. Like, there's not a lot of things that we think of as Oscar contenders that well, are going to be eligible Now, there. Joy is in there. Yes. And, and that's a recent decision, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think it will help Joy if it gets nominated there. I can't if imagine Joy why needs it help. wouldn't. And then I think the, the Martian, the Martian will most definitely get nominated, and that will help the Martian. The other one that I think could really be helped, two more that I think could really be helped, are The Big Short, which I finally saw yesterday and I loved, and, and Diary of a Teenage Girl, which keeps winning weird awards. Yeah, Diary of Te- uh, Belle Powley, the star of that, won the Gotham Award for Best Actress last night as we record this and beating out Kate Blanchett and Carol and Brie Larson and Room. It was kind of a surprise. But that movie, it's I mean, it involves a lot of nudity and a 15-year-old having sex with a 30-something man. Like, it is not typical comedy, you know, big, splashy TV broadcast fodder, but I yeah. would love it if it got in there. And then there's Trainwreck, which which maybe, you know, there's there's a slight possibility that Trainwreck could figure in in some way in the Oscars this year, and Globes would help it for sure. Yeah, I don't think there's any way that Amy Schumer's not going to get nominated. They want her yeah. at the show. Yep. I mean, yes. you know, they have gotten better about, you know, the tourist, Angelina Jolie's notorious nomination for that movie <laughs> from a few years ago. But I think that the, something Oscar-wise that I like about the Golden Globes is when they almost kind of don't answer any questions. Like, I remember when, you know, when Jennifer Lawrence was was kind of going through the motions for Silver Linings Playbook and winning all these awards, but also Chastain was there for Zero uh, for Zero Dark Thirty. They she Jennifer Lawrence won comedy and Jessica Chastain won drama, and so we didn't settle anything. Mm-hmm. You know, so yes. we still had sort of had this mystery. And I'm curious. Well, yeah, to see, a lot of times know, it anoints the two people right, who are now going right. head to head, kind of. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious to see if we get our Kerrigan and our Harding, you know, <laughs> uh, from from this. Well, I was um, thinking that uh, Matt Damon could win for comedy because for The Martian, and DiCaprio right. could win for The Revenant, and then you get the Dep- Parted reunion oh we've all gosh. been waiting yeah, for. Yeah, see, exactly. That would that would be exciting. I think that the other crucial function that the Golden Globes serve, and maybe it's the most crucial function, and this is why they do matter, is that it's a really nice, like, kind of small meal to sort of hold us over until the end of February. You know, mm-hmm. like, yeah. they're really fun to watch. The TV people get involved. There's that great joke that Amy Poehler or Tina Fey had when they hosted, you know, like where the the beautiful people of of the movies can hang out with the rat face people of television or something. (laughs) You know, so you get to see that kind of mix. It's fun and it's in January and January is terrible otherwise. So so I think that the Golden Globes are are a good sort of like it it keeps the momentum going. Um, And then sometimes, you know, like I said, can can kind of highlight or sort of hone a race to to, you know, a really interesting kind of double double act. Yeah. Well, and by the way, just looking at what would likely happen in Best Actress. I mean, you got Jennifer Lawrence in the comedy spot and Brie Larson, I guess, at the top of drama. Although I do think Brie Larson's position, I just feel like Room does, is not getting any momentum it's from not, the very I was early looking awards. at its box office the other night. It's not, it, it hasn't expanded that much, but it's not yeah. succeeding quite the way that I thought it would, being you know, that it's such a powerful movie in an audience. Yeah, it didn't really connect 
very much at the Independent Spirit Awards. It was left off of the Sight and Sound poll, but apparently there's, you know, technicality reasons for that. Yeah, that's an international thing, and release dates get weird there. Yes, it comes out next year. But uh, Gotham Awards, it didn't play a part yeah. in that last night. So I'm I don't s- think there's any way she doesn't get nominated at the Golden Globes. So. I, I think she will definitely get nominated, and I think she's quite likely to get nominated for uh, an Oscar, too. Mm-hmm. But I think that... I don't know. I mean, there was a time when everybody thought, oh, she's going to win the Oscar, but that is starting to look questionable. I, I still think it's as likely as anything else, but yeah. uh, only because Kate Blanchett won two years ago. We've talked about this, yes. about how she's up. Not, she'll likely be nominated for Carol, but won two years ago. But yeah, I mean, I think movies like Room and Spotlight at the Golden Globes can have a strange position because they're not big and flashy and full of stars the way that like The Martian is or The Revenant or something like that. They don't have kind of the heft behind them. I think Spotlight in particular would be really interesting to watch at the Globes. If it does well, then you can tell this movie has its power because it's not huge and flashy and emotional as we've discussed but it's kind of hard yeah, to ignore. Yeah, I think the feeling about Spotlight is it owns the indie world, it owns critics because it's just a gorgeous or a brilliant meticulous piece of filmmaking mm-hmm. but it doesn't have the kind of sweep necessarily that like voters might yeah. go for and so it'll be really interesting to see that that's going to be very interesting to see how Spotlight does you know when the Golden Globe nominations are announced. Yeah, and not that you know it, Spotlight could then go on to win 100 critics prizes between now and the Golden Globe nominations. I mean the New York yeah. Film Critics Circle is going to announce a bunch of other st- groups will announce between now and then. And I so. think it will. I think it will do yeah. extremely well exactly. in all those So things. you could wind up with having, you know, the Golden Globes even if they blanket and the Spotlight can still look strong because the critics and next week we'll talk about how the critics groups kind of factor into all of this because we'll have a lot of those nominations out there. Yeah, and I think another thing, you know, t- speaking about Brie Larson in Room and, and, and Spotlight, you know, be these sort of small, you know, critic critical darlings that aren't sort of maybe connecting with audiences as much as people thought they might. You know, when these nominations come out, when the critics awards come out, those things put these movies back in the conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, was anyone really talking about Still Alice last year? You know, I mean, people yeah. were saying that Julianne Moore was great in it, but like no one had seen it. And but all of a sudden, you know, she got, you know, nominations, early awards, whatever. And then all the, she was sort of anointed. And I think that hopefully, I mean, because I'm a big fan of it, I hopefully we'll see that happen with Spotlight and, and Brie Larson's performance in Room. I think you're right. What you're saying there is Spotlight is going to get a lot of boost from all that stuff. And it's, it's increasingly looking like it's going to be Brie Larson in in this in the Julianne Moore from Still Alice position, right? Which is which is surprising to As me because I thought Room was really really good, yeah. Right. But it just doesn't seem that it has that momentum right now. Yeah, I mean, but that again, like these critics, like things can change so much between now and Christmas will just yeah. change on a dime when like one big award comes in. You're like, and everyone's like, oh yeah, of course. I keep saying mm-hmm. that about Ridley Scott being the best director for The Martian, which I feel I think it feels as likely as anyone else winning. And I think yeah. The Martian kind of feels like it happened, like it's out there, it's this big hit, we remember it, but like doesn't have the like passion driving it but I think the minute it comes back around and like one of those awards pops up all of a sudden the Martian is there well the other thing is there seems to be an opening well I don't know I think Revenant is better than you guys think it is so I I can imagine a world where Revenant takes best picture but there's an opening for best director because mm-hmm. Inuritu won it last year yep exactly right? so there's a little bit of a toss up and it's like does Tom McCarthy get it do they give it to Ridley like one last round you know or maybe that's dismissive of Ryan Ridley. Coogler for Creed the biggest crowd pleaser any of us have seen in a while I, that would be amazing it would be amazing yeah I, that, I mean that's another thing the Golden Globes could go for Creed which is a big crowd pleaser and you know had Michael B. Jordan as a big rising star who they might want to embrace early and, and you know I was thinking about Creed the problem with Creed well I don't know I I think of Creed as a very American movie, and sometimes mm. I think that American themes have a hard time at the Globes, right? Because let's remember, 
for some reason, this thing that's a huge part of American culture is given out by 80 foreign <laughs> journalists Who from live in like LA. the Netherlands. That's true. Okay. But so, no, you're right. But sometimes there, there's kind of like blind spots where, you know, they don't, baseball movies don't do great at the Golden Globes. Maybe this is where Mad Max Fury Road and International Production Well, I do back. think maybe. I could see that Charlize coming in awesome. for Mad Max because that is a kind of a funky, weird, you don't have to speak the language to enjoy that mm-hmm. movie. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it has a, 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 you know, it's it's Australian, but it has a sort of Euro vibe to it. it yeah. yeah. It was filmed in Africa. Like it's got like That's a right. uh, yeah. global appeal. Um, yeah. I didn't mean that it was done in another language, but like you no. could yeah. without right. subtitles you could watch it really the dialogue is irrelevant is not, like yeah tom hardy to barely speaks at all in that movie right. yeah i think all of our excitement kind of indicates why we love the golden globes is because weird things can happen and they'll throw off your oscar predictions but you know who cares yes it's more fun to have an interesting award show well and this. the oscars can be a little stuffy and this thing is not that stuffy yeah and ho- god willing it stays that way i'm really i'm dreading the day when the golden globes try to get too serious and uh you know, fancy things up. But I think they know their important role in this season. I hope so. Well, they brought back Ricky Gervais, so that suggests that they know that they can't be taken too seriously. (laughs) For any of you who don't know, the Golden Globes are just like the Oscars, but without all that esteem. (laughs) The Golden Globes are to the Oscars what Kim Kardashian is to Kate Middleton, basically. And finally, it's time to go big before we go home. I want you guys to make your bold predictions. And I guess as the season goes on, they're less bold and we know more. Uh, but about who will win Best Supporting Actress. When I make a Twitter joke, I, I really want to be meticulous about my <laughs> facts and, and accuracy. So I was just saying, like, I don't know if we're ready for the photo of, you know, when I was just joking about which four actors yeah. are going to win Oscars this year. And Best Supporting Actress was really hard to sort of come up with. Because like Mike said earlier, the supporting actor race this year is ridiculous. It's like... 40 guys who are who are sort yeah. of in content in like really valid contention for it um with the women i think we have you know this category fraud thing happening a little bit with Vic Kander we talked about and yeah. and and and, and, Rooney Mara. and Rooney Mara, who i think right now is the front runner to win for carol i think that movie unfortunately has not been met with quite the praise that i think it deserves and not you know i mean i think it's definitely going to get a bunch of nominations but i think that Rooney in, in some ways could be the movie's best shot to, to win something in the big five categories. You yeah. know, I think certainly it could win a bunch of technical awards. But but yeah, so I'm going to say Rooney Mara right now. Yeah, I, I think Rooney Mara is a pretty big contender as well. But I finally caught up with youth over the weekend. And Jane Fonda has one scene that's a really great scene. And Jane Fonda, she's on Grace and Frankie right now. She's, you know, out doing interviews. She's hilarious. She's been... But she's an industry legend. She has this one great scene in a pretty great movie. And I think that's the exact kind of thing that in a weird supporting actress category could propel her to the top. I'll tell you, Jane Fonda, I was at a youth lunch last week and she's she works she's working those rooms. Oh man. Yeah, she was at the Fox Searchlight party. She was like she was like Santa Claus at the party. She was yeah. like sitting at the front and everyone like came by to like kiss her ring. She seems very happy to be back. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and and you know, she didn't really go away, but like yeah. and actually that's another thing is is she's been around mm-hmm. and hanging out with this crowd for a long time, but now she's really got something. You definitely can't count her out. By the way, Michael Caine is like the best at working a room, and I really st- sincerely believe he will get nominated, if only for that reason. But, okay, I think Rooney Mara, too. But just to be interesting, <laughs> another possibility that I think is very interesting is Jennifer Jason Lee from The Hateful Eight. And I, there's not much I can say about this, but I, I <laughs> it's have... It's a movie you have seen, but are not allowed to talk about. I have about. a feeling that she might present a very welcome dash of kind of 
totally unorthodox femininity to a very macho movie while also doing a bunch of stuff that you've never seen a woman on screen do before in terms of slapstick craziness. And she's uh, she's had kind of a secretly great year. She was in While You're y- We're Young for Noah Baumbach. She was in Welcome to Me with Kristen Wiig. She's in An- 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 Anomalisa and also Hateful Eight. Yeah. So I think that it's it's a possibility. I think yeah. that she might be the most uh, voter-friendly thing if I had to guess about Hateful Eight. And she's legacy. I mean, her father was an actor, and you know, she's she's like in the Hollywood community in that mm-hmm. way. And she's I just saw Annalisa for the first time last night, and and you know, it's a voice performance, but um, she's really phenomenal it's, in it. That, isn't that movie amazing? Yeah, I, I I'm still kind of thinking about it, and, yeah, and but she has sort of been the one disturbing. that like kind of stuck in my head the most. Yeah, I, I like that prediction. Like I could I could get behind that. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find all of us writing about award season and much more at VanityFair.com and follow all of us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Mike is... Mike underscore Hogan, which I need to change. <laughs> and Richard. Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And all of us are on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And you can also find us on iTunes and review us if you so choose, which uh, helps us find new listeners. This episode was produced by Sam Dingman and Tim Einenkill. You can find this and many more great podcasts at panoply.fm. 